Back again for another week of Securiosity. But first, next week, it's here. One more time. If you're not going to join us, think about it. And we'll see you next week at DC Cloud Week, a citywide festival bringing together thousands of government and tech leaders from around the nation to share how the cloud is transforming government, academia, nonprofits, and the private sector. The week-long festival consists of events like community conferences, events, and parties, and it's anchored by Fed Talks, the largest annual gathering of the top 1,000 C-level leaders from the GovTech community. For more information on all the events we got going on, I think we jumped from like 40 to 70 events going on next week. Communities really come together on this really exciting week next week. For more information, check out dccloudweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for May 31st. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jenna Daniel. We're bringing you the world's best InfoSec News wrap-up. The eternal topic, at least for this week, has been Eternal Blue. Lots of bickering, conjecture, and confusion on the internet about its role in the Baltimore ransomware attack, and we'll try to break it all down. In our interview, we talk with Andrea Little Lombago, Chief Social Scientist at Virtue. Andrea gets into why the WhatsApp flaw should not have been a knock on encryption, and continues our look into privacy efforts in social media. And we finally did it. We finally have both seen crypto and we have thoughts. Lots so of thoughts. We'll, we'll get to it later, but first let's get to all this news. A component of the malware that has been wrecking havoc on Baltimore reportedly came from an exploit developed down the road at the NSA. The New York Times reported last weekend that Eternal Blue has reportedly since been used in another ransomware attacks on other cities, including Allentown, Pennsylvania, and in San Antonio, Texas. The revelation that a tool leaked from the NSA is behind attacks on American cities reignites the debate over whether the government is capable of keeping a tight enough watch over its tools once they are in the wild. Later in the week, NSA advisor Rob Joyce pushed back on the notion that the NSA bears the blame for the Baltimore attack, reminding people that Microsoft pushed a patch to defend against Eternal Blue more than two years ago. Greg, this has been a pretty big fight this week, hasn't it? It's been a huge one. Um, And it's really, really interesting to me because it gets at like five or six different issues that I'm not sure all connected. Right. Um, But I think the primary thing here to talk about is how much blame should be put on the NSA for what we have seen in Baltimore. And personally, I don't think that they are totally to blame. Like uh, the the notion that the NSA did something wrong here, I think is a little bit short-sighted because, look, yes, this was an NSA tool that got out into the wild, particularly because the shadow brokers leaked it. That's bad. And we could talk about all the, the changes that need to happen at the NSA to make sure that doesn't happen. But even though it did happen, the NSA had really, at the end of the day, had no control about this tool being out there. Like, it, it just it just didn't. Like, the NSA wasn't going to drop this tool out right. to, to have it be just in standard crimeware. That wasn't the plan when this was developed by, you know, the, the internal employees at the NSA or the contractors that wrote right. Eternal Blue. Like, this... What else could have been done? I mean, this wasn't something that was game planned for. Nobody ever thought that this was going to be dropped into standard crimeware. Right. And even when it was leaked, I'm kind of with Rob Joyce here saying that the patch was out there. Like, if you're not paying attention to this patch, that's 
pretty bad. I mean, this wasn't just your run-of-the-mill, like, Patch Tuesday update from Microsoft where it's like, okay, we'll, well, we'll get to that when we get to that because we might break things. Like, no, this was a pretty critical patch that was released a month before Eternal Blue was even dropped on the world. Like, it, it has been out there. So I don't think the NSA is entirely blameless, but there's a lot more blame that can be passed around to everybody in the chain when it comes to what has happened here. And, yeah. People just aren't serious about putting in patches. I mean, that's especially sort of at those levels. It needs to be done. Right. And I, I think the budgetary numbers for Baltimore's city IT have since come out. And as far as, like, the overall, like, percent of the budget that goes into their IT for the city overall. I think it's only like 2.5% yeah, or something enough. like that. Yeah. It, it, it's obviously not enough. But th th this notion that lawmakers and policy people can turn around and say that the NSA is to blame for this. Right. Like, do some more research. Like, I think I've actually seen some reports that the Baltimore City Council is saying that the NSA needs to pick up the bill for for. Yeah, what no. happened in Baltimore, where that's just... Ridiculous. Th that's ridiculous bureaucracy of passing the buck of not being able to handle your own bureaucratic issues in the city. Like, patch your stuff. Right. Um, but the fight over this, I don't understand the knives out for the NSA. There, there are so many other things that the knives could be out for the NSA for, especially when it comes to, like... Uh, the VEP, the, the Vulnerabilities Equities Process, mm -hmm. which has yep. been another conversation uh, that has popped up this week and I think should be the conversation that should be primary, but it's not been and has really been just finger-pointing over who is to blame for this and it's really not helping anybody because at the end of the day, Baltimore is still a mess when it comes to the, their IT and the services that have been impacted like this. So how, instead of finger-pointing, just patch next time? Like, patch. How about that? Like, this shows that patch management is what's needed. And hopefully, this makes other people pay attention and install the patch. Right. So, FireEyes Threat Intelligent Team said it had uncovered Twitter accounts that impersonated Republican congressional candidates in the buildup to the 2018 midterm elections writing posts on politics and other topics. And in some case, FireEye suspects the actors and linked personas were also able to have materials published in U.S. and Israeli media outlets. And then in a separate announcement, Facebook detailed the takedown of fake accounts emanating from Iran that appeared to focus on outreach to policymakers. The accounts and linked personas at times imitated legitimate news organizations in the Middle East and at other times purported to even be journalists. Neither company attributed the information operations directly to the Iranian government, but it's been a mess. And Jen, it doesn't look like the misinformation campaigns are slowing down. No, and, and, and they're not going to. Um, and again, if we're really thinking that we should be looking to a Facebook or to a Twitter or to an Instagram um, for election news and who we should vote for in 2020, then we're really just in trouble as a country. Yeah, this comes also as this week a lot of media hype was around a video of Nancy Pelosi mm -hmm. that was edited to make it look like she was drunk. And I think the media took that and ran with it a little bit in that that video wasn't widely disseminated and widely circulated. And even though it was, it's, it's pretty obvious to see that it's fake. 
because if you just watch it, it just doesn't look right. And also all the media reports then saying, no, this is fake, bring attention to it. But just the noise around this stuff doesn't seem to be helping at all. I mean, it's kind of what people do on the internet, though, right? I mean, if you if you looked at the, the fire announcement that um, former Secretary of State um, Hillary Clinton is going to be their guest speaker and you, you listen to, like, all the troll comments, I mean, that's what people do. They make weird videos on the internet and post them on Twitter, right? Like, that's – there's all kinds of people that are, like, staying in all weekend doing exactly that. Right. And then the disinformation on top of that – too, with this FireEye report saying that it was published in U.S. and Israeli media outlets, I think was a little bit off because it looked like they were letters to the editor that were submitted to the L.A. Times and the Seattle Times. And those letters to the editor are not really seeing an editor's eyeballs. And I think the L.A. Times has since come out and said, this was really a hiccup in our CMS that published something that shouldn't have been published. Like, there was no human interaction where somebody was deceived into thinking a politician actually submitted something for editing that was really somebody in Iran or the Middle East trying to sow discord in the U.S. so did they publish a letter to the editor from somebody... With, like, a fake name? Is that... That's what looks to have happened, but there hasn't been a legitimate way to verify that some human at the LA Times read this and went, oh, this needs to be on our website and, like, pressed... Right. ...publish in their WordPress instance or CMS or whatever it is. It just looks like it was some sort of automated hiccup that really should have never been online in the first place. So it was really more of a of a technical issue that that never really saw like it wasn't like this was front page news. Right. So um yeah, look, all of this is just such a mess. It really is such a mess and goes to show what you have been saying for a while. Don't get your political and campaign news from social media. Just a bad idea. But if you do, go ahead and and follow me and just take uh, my political views and, and run with them. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're now who's sowing disinformation? The risk posed by foreign-made VPN applications must be accounted for, even if government device users have avoided such apps, because adversaries are interested in exploiting the software according to a new DHS assessment. Chris Krebs, head of DHS's Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, wrote in a letter to Senator Ron Wyden that there is no indication that foreign VPNs are widely used in the U.S. government, according to Krebs, but a lack of data leaves that question unanswered. Greg, is there a way to get that data? I don't know that that necessarily is, but I think that this is definitely something that the government should be trying to measure because there are a ton of weird VPN apps out there. Oh, for sure. And a lot of it goes into trust. I mean, are are you going to trust these VPNs that are just out there? And this isn't necessarily from an enterprise standpoint. Uh, I mean, from an enterprise standpoint, there are just regulations beyond belief as to whether a VPN gets spun up inside the enterprise. So that's not really a problem. We're talking really about like your mobile VPNs or something that you can download on a phone. And if you're talking about uh, government workforce's phone, you get into the BYOD thing. And there's just a Absolutely. lot of devices yeah. out there that who knows what they're connected to or what apps are out there and what's uh, underneath those apps. And there's just a ton of we just talked about disinformation we're talking about disinformation 
the way that these VPNs are set up and the way that they log and the, where the, that traffic is actually being routed and God forbid if anybody's actually looking in on that traffic, that shouldn't be like you're really rolling the dice if you are going into a sketchy VPN app that you just got off a recommendation or just happened to game Apple's app store, the Android app store or something like that. And next thing you know, you got government secrets floating into who knows what server in, some, right. in, in Romania or Russia or China or Thailand or whatever. I mean, it, it, it's just a mess. It, it, it's a hard thing to um, get your hands around, whether you're the U.S. government, a, a private enterprise or anything in between. So what um, So what VPN app do you use? I know that I, I look at, I invest in cybersecurity companies for a living, and, and so I see like all kinds of stuff. And I often, um, if it's something like a VPN or something that's usable um, as an individual, I typically will download it or have the device or whatever it is and, and play with it. Um, and so right now, I think the VPN on my phone is um, a little company that went through Mach 37 whose name I can't think of. <laughs> um, but like, I've probably had like five or six different ones on my phone um, over the time being... I used, so I, I have used a bunch myself. I, I think the first one that I used uh, a couple years ago was one by a company called Keep Solid. Okay. And I, uh, I believe it's the, the app is called VPN Unlimited that I did the research at the time and was comfortable with how they kept logging procedures and like where they're based. And uh, I was comfortable with it when I was using it, but it, then it got to be like a technical issue right. where for whatever reason, it just kept launching, like it just kept launching whether I wanted it on or off. Like there was times where I would use it for travel and then switch it off. And then it got to a point where it just didn't work, which, okay, fine. I, and I left it. Now I use uh, Encrypt Me. Okay. Which is one, I forget where they're based, which is, I sound awful saying that, but I forget where they're based. But I know that logging-wise, they don't keep logs for a very long amount of time, which is something that I'm okay with. I know that there are other users out there that are like, we, I want a VPN, no logging whatsoever, just reroute my traffic where you're going to reroute my traffic through. And hey, that's fine. That's a choice that you have to make if you're going to use um, a VPN. But I believe they are US-based um, and it's it's fast. Which it's always easy makes to me use. feel bad. Right. Yeah. And also, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later, uh, Dashlane on their mobile app also offers yeah. a VPN, but you have to use it in their app. And it, it, the, the functionality is a little bit weird in that you can turn it on and leave the app, but once you leave the app overall after a certain amount of time, it just shuts off. Like I would rather just have it where the Dashlane VPN just sits in my phone's overall settings and I can control it outside of the app and have it on all the time. But uh, that's one of the unique things that comes with Dashlane, and I like that. I just don't use it as much as I use EncryptMe. And I just have to say, like, PSA to all of our non-cybersecurity listeners, do not log on to the Wi-Fi at Starbucks, Panera's, anywhere that's free without using a VPN on your yes, phone. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's why you should have one of these. And, and look, to download one of these apps, if you do the homework, it, it's no more than any other paid app. Yeah. I mean, it's four bucks. It's that cup of coffee at Starbucks. Right. 
And it really would go a long way to uh, protecting you because you think, oh, well, who's going to uh, who's going to be sitting on one of these networks and they sniffing. absolutely are they They're absolutely the are i have been in coffee shops in dc where i have seen people doing this like just over the shoulder just sitting there sitting on wire shark and just looking at all the traffic that's oh, coming yeah. through i do not want to roll the dice and figure out if that person is just doing it for quote-unquote research purposes or they're actually looking to, you know, sniff some credentials from your stuff. So it's definitely worth the purchase. Do some homework. Figure out what works for you VPN-wise and uh, download something that's the best four bucks you're ever going to spend. Absolutely. So New York lawmakers are debating whether to approve a bill that would update the state's data breach notification law to cover more personal information and force firms to disclose ransomware infections, among other measures. The SHIELD Act also would cover any business that holds sensitive data of New York residents rather than only firms that do business in the state. It's an important detail cribbed from the GDPR, which compels organizations to report breaches affecting EU citizens, no matter where the hacked company is located, to regulators within 72 hours. The SHIELD Act requires notification to affected individuals without unreasonable delay, a time period that typically means about 30 days, according to State Senator Kevin Thomas, who said the law could go into effect next year. Jen, do you think this law sounds feasible? I mean, look, I think we should be reporting all breaches that disclose sensitive data of any U.S. resident. Um, It's interesting that in the EU, it's 72 hours, and they're saying 30 days um, for New York citizens. Yeah, I think that just goes into just a greater movement that we're seeing across the country. And that these states are realizing that their data breach notifications aren't tight enough. So they're ramping up what they need to ramp up in order to really put the power back into the consumer or the user, which I will always be for. Because think about how many breaches that we deal with on a, a weekly basis. It's clear that... There's no teeth to a lot of these laws, and consumers are kind of left to twist in the wind, which right. sucks. I, I don't like that. I don't think you like that. I don't mm-hmm. think that we'd find anybody that's like, eh, I'll, I'll take it for the convenience. I think right. that that's starting to change. So anything that sort of ups the game when it comes to these laws is definitely worthwhile. And we get into this when we talk to Andrea Little Lombago in our interview. This is something that is just going to change. And it might even be a catalyst to have the federal government put something on the books that is really more of a national data breach notification law, which we can argue whether that needs to be done or not. But uh, I I think I wouldn't be surprised if you see something come out of the, uh, you know, the House or the Senate within the next year, year and a half. I mean, as a consumer, I say, you know, please do pass a bill that protects me. So three months since the shakeup of the management of Israeli spyware vendor NSO Group, digital rights groups are stepping up their probe of the company's investors in an effort to highlight the alleged abuse of the spyware. The inquiry is drawing attention to the unexpected role that NSO Group's private equity firm, Novalpina Capital, are playing in the standoff. In a letter last week to one of the pension funds, the head of Citizen Lab asked the Britain's South Yorkshire Pensions Authority to confirm that its investment in Novalpina Capital conformed with its commitment to human rights. So, Greg, Britain isn't the only one with some pension funds at risk here, right? Yeah, uh, this isn't just Britain. I know there is a pension fund in Oregon that represents state government workers that has some money in Novalpina Capital. There's one in Alaska. Uh, as well. And this is a really, really interesting 
model of going after these companies and, and the money behind it, basically saying, oh, there are people out there that are investing in these companies or investing in funds that make money off of these companies that have no idea what the companies do. I, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. I think if you were to pull aside some, you know, retired Oregon State workers and go, hey, th- do you know what NSO Group is? I bet you don't. Okay, here's what this company does. Do you realize that some of the money that you're making is coming from this? Are you comfortable with that? I, I think that that is discussion worth having. I mean, I guess. So, you know, so what coming from a venture fund, we have limited partners. A pension fund is a limited partner. And I don't think that it's fair to think there's really any oversight from a pension fund um, that is putting money into a venture capital fund or a private equity group. They don't really know um, what it's investment in, right? You sell them on sort of an investment thesis um, that I'm going to invest in companies that look like a certain stage in a certain sector. Um, and if it's cybersecurity at a, at a late stage, I mean, right, that- they're, not, they're not doing any research into what these companies do. Um, what they really want to know is what they're responsible for is to make sure that those pension holders, um, you know, are getting the best return for the investment, right? That's that's what it matters. The numbers in this matter, right. not so much the, the what. Right, right. And that's why I think that it's so unique because, yeah, personally, I mean, I – I know where my funds, I don't have a pension, but I'm just thinking like 401k, for instance, just, I I know where my funds are going. I, I, I would think that, I, I guess I'm putting too much faith into people thinking that they would want to know because I'm sure that there are some people that would go, you know what, I, I don't really care. As long as those returns keep coming in, I don't have the time to worry about this. I'm not really concerned with it. I'll, I'll let the finance people handle it. And, well, and it's a, that's that. Yeah. And it's a little bit different, right? Because I think you're talking about when you're talking about sort of your 401k um, or the stock you hold, you're you're sort of able to drill in a little bit more on, on a, I don't know, maybe you're just picking groups of mutual funds, right? And so you kind of know that you're investing in like bio life companies and maybe you know what those companies are, maybe There's not. There's not that I mean, same visibility a with a pension, right? It's just a very different thing. And you're also, for the most part, talking about public companies um, on that level. And in a pension fund, you're investing in that private equity fund or the venture capital fund, um, and they're investing in private companies. Right. So you have, really don't have any insight. Right. And it really is just about the return on investment. Right. Well, that's unfortunate because I feel like if people – knew the shadiness into it, they would be like, oh, I'm not really into that. But then I think you're right at the end of the day. They're just going to be like, look, this is the pension fund. I just I just made sure that my nest egg is, is safe and they're not going to be asking any other questions beyond that. I, I mean, right. I mean, you're, you're literally just what your pension. Um, I wish I had one. So here's a wrap up of all the breaches and exposures we've seen this week. Security research Jeremiah Fowler discovered a Chinese database exposing roughly 42.5 million records compiled from various dating apps, mostly about Americans. While it's not clear who controls the leaky database, Fowler accessed the site's whose is domain registration to find that a subway line in China was given an owner's address. Interesting. An unprotected database containing... 212,220 records, including usernames, email addresses, 
phone numbers, and other data about customers who purchase services from the Melbourne-based company Amazing Co. is accessible online, security Richard Jeremiah Flowers said Monday. Amazing Co. offers wine tours, kids' parties, and other unique experiences to customers in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. customer records, including feedback about staff and services, were stored in an elastic database without a password, Flowers explained. The company has not responded to researchers' notifications. And First American Financial Corp, Fortune 500 real estate and mortgage insurer, may have exposed nearly 900 million files since at least March 2017, Krebs on Security first reported. While it's not clear if hackers accessed the records, some of the files may have been containing tax records, wire transaction receipts, social security numbers, and banking data. Outsiders would have only needed a web address to view the files. The company says it shut down their vulnerable web portal and that it is investigating the possible impact on customer security. So what's the worst of this, Greg? I would say that last one. Um, oh, for the, sure. The yeah. 900 million files that have been exposed since 2017. I mean, First American Financial Corps, I mean, they're one of the leading companies when it comes to the money flying around when you close on any sort of real estate property. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that I dealt with them when I closed on my house four or five years ago. So the the, the 900 million files, I would not be surprised if there's some of my info in there. I mean, I think that they've closed this since then, but... Think about all of that that is out there. I mean, that, that's your financial livelihood. You're talking about your, your real estate investments, your tax records, the, the wire receipts that go into it, your Social Security numbers, and your banking data. I mean, that's about as sensitive as it gets when it comes to financial data. That's everything. So for that to just have been floated out there, not great. But at the same time, this is one of those data exposures and not like an actual breach. Right. Like this was just an open door. This wasn't a theft of data. Doesn't so, mean someone didn't go through that open door and take the data. Right. And, and that is what's always so frightening about these data exposures where it's like, it. yeah. yeah, yeah. Did anybody else find this? Was I the first person here? I mean, you never can really know. But I mean, it's... Not as bad as a breach, obviously, because a breach confirms that it's out the door. But um, just the, the sensitivity of the data that was exposed there is oh, not not <laughs> not great. So I actually think great. the the first one's kind of fun though, right? So you got forty two point five million records from dating apps. Like it'd be kind of fun um, if they sort of made a list format, and then you could search and see like how many of your married friends are like sitting out on. So that is an entirely different sensitive data pool that is unbelievable that I would almost bet that there are some people out there that are like, uh, okay, uh, take my social security number over what I might be possibly doing on some of these dating apps. I mean, like I that, think that's, that's a, a trade-off I'm willing sure to make. For sure true, for sure true, that um, people would rather have the social security number taken. Um, but the way yeah. that this was was found like accessed accessing a domain registration that went to a subway line in China like th this data is <laughs> gone this data is this data is is so gone like good luck on finding where this data ever even came from 
it's it's wild the amount of scraping that we see um, going on with some of these data exposures. Yeah. So with all of that, there is also just a ton of money flying around cybersecurity this week. Ton of stuff going on with companies. Let's sort of break all of this down on the business side of things. From the acquisition standpoint, this week, FireEye announced that it bought Veridin for around $250 million, which was paid in cash and stock. Veridin allows FireEye to run a review against the existing security setup and find gaps in coverage, especially when it comes to cloud security. Palo Alto Networks bought two companies, one, Twistlock, a container security company, and two, PureSec, a company that helps enterprises build and maintain secure and reliable serverless applications. The terms of the PureSec deal were not disclosed, but Palo Alto said it bought Twistlock for $410 million. And then if that was not enough, New York venture capital and private equity firm Insight Partners acquired a controlling stake in threat intelligence company Recorded Future for $780 million. Jen, let's pause there. We'll get to the private funding a little bit later, but that is a lot of money flying around in terms of acquisition. I think it's super exciting. I think it's, um, you know, one, I think you have to sort of roll some of these cybersecurity companies up into bigger cybersecurity companies, um, but... This is great. Yeah, isn't that the goal sometimes? Absolutely. Like not not necessarily think about it from the standpoint. Oh, we're going to IPO someday. It's just like no, we're going to wait until the biggest check comes in. And it seems like that's what a lot of these companies didn't. And hey, good for them because <laughs> it, the this check. is yeah. the, these are nine figure deals. Yeah. And that's it's we're talking close to uh, over a billion dollars in money just in acquisitions uh, this week. So. Um, yeah, and good for uh, Veridin. I know Veridin is right in our backyard. I believe they're based in Tyson's. That uh, Great payday. Great payday for them. Well, depending on how much capital they raise. But, yeah, I mean, super, super interesting. And, sure. yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, that Recorded Future got all of that money and things necessarily aren't going to change. Like, yeah, they have a parent company now, but at the same time, nothing's going to change. They're going to still do the the research that they do they're going to still monitor the dark web they're still going to be putting out that threat intelligence that a lot of people have um come to rely on we report on it we have a good relationship with recorded future as well and i know uh, you know this is a long way i think that you know uh, google ventures and inqtel are happy with their investments because they were the early investors here and again that sort of payout and that's why you get into this right absolutely yeah it's interesting to just see a private equity firm or venture firm take a controlling interest. Um, that also seems to be pretty popular these days. Um, someone else in our backyard um, that we had on the podcast, I can't think of the company's name. They changed their name when they did it. Aaron Higby's company. Oh, Cofence. Cofence, yeah. I mean, same thing, right? They, they were basically bought out, and it's a great way um, for the employees and the founders to sort of get a payday. Um, and the ambassadors stick it out without really changing what the company's doing and just making it bigger. So on the private funding side, that's a good segue. Swim Lane, a security orchestration automation and response vendor, announced that it raised an additional $23 million in a Series B financing round from Energy Impact Partners, which is a utility-backed energy investment and innovation firm. That round brings their total funding to $35 million. 
Then Blue Voyant, a New York-based cybersecurity firm which provides managed security, professional services, and most recently threat intelligence, announced the close of an expanded 82.5 million Series B funding round. The new investment included participation from new and existing investors from Fiserv, which we are familiar with, a financial services technologies giant, and this brings their total funding to $207.5 million to date. And Dashlane, the password manager we mentioned earlier, closed a $110 million Series D funding led by Sequoia with existing investors Row Ventures, First Mark, and Bessemer Ventures also participating in the round. Again, Jen, a lot of money flying around this week. Yeah, I mean, a lot of money. I think, you know, Swimlane is certainly probably the most interesting of the three. You know, look, orchestration is is probably where the future is going. We don't see a lot of venture-backed orchestration companies, um, certainly not at, at sort of the $35 million level. And then if you sort of look at who their investor was, you, you basically got a strategic investor, right? So they're investing in this because they're going to have um, – their utilities that are backing this fund um, are going to probably start using this um, product, which means this is something they were looking for and, and needed. And I have to shout out Dashlane too, because Dashlane for me, this is not a a paid for pitch. I actually don't know anybody at Dashlane, but I love their product. I really do love their product. It's a password manager. There's a ton of password managers out there, but I think Dashlane's is the best. I've used a bunch, but I, I love Dashlane's product. It's easy to use. There are different ways to integrate it into your browser that everything works automatically. And it goes beyond just password managing too. Like we were saying earlier, they have a VPN product on their mobile app. They have ways that if you want to pay a little bit more money, they'll do credit monitoring for you. Uh, they have a secure browser in their mobile app. Um, they just continue to build products that allow consumers and regular everyday users to be more and more cognizant of their own cyber hygiene, which I think is just so, so important. I mean, we can talk yeah. about AV and security orchestra orchestration and all of that matters for an enterprise, and that's very, very important. But from a consumer standpoint, using a product like Dashlane is one of the easiest ways you can protect yourself online from identity theft, credential stuffing. I mean, when a password is, is breached in one of these uh, incidents that we talk about all the time, you get a notification from Dashlane that, hey, uh, Reddit was popped or your Dunkin' Donuts app password yeah. needs to be changed or something like that. That is just so vital for everyday users to have. So I'm glad that they see that they've raised just a ton of money and hopefully they can pour it back into the product and help it grow more so than it already has. I'm hitting download on Dashlane right now. There we go. So, okay, now to our interview with Andrea Little-Lombago. Andrea is the chief social scientist at Virtue, and she wrote a very, very interesting op-ed for CyberScoop this week called Stop Demonizing Encryption. There's been a lot of articles and, and hot takes around the NSO group targeting WhatsApp that has since weirdly morphed into the conversation around encryption, and there was 
an op-ed on Bloomberg that called encryption a gimmick that a lot of us turned our nose up at, and for good reason. And Andrea was one of them, and she wrote an op-ed for us on why encryption is so important, regardless of what happened at WhatsApp. And we also get into things happening around privacy laws on the state and federal level. Check it out. All right, now we're here with Andrea Little Lombago from Virtue. Andrea, thanks for joining us. And uh, you wrote an op-ed for CyberScoop this week around the current conversation surrounding the big WhatsApp hack that was found and how it's really snowballed into an argument about encryption. So tell us why this has you so fired up. Right, no, thanks for having me. Um, so what I've been doing a lot of research on really over the last few years is focusing on more and more how governments across the globe are trying to control information. Part of it's the disinformation, part of it's the censorship, but part of it also is the access to information. And so there's growing discussion across all of the governments, really, about what their encryption policy is going to be. And so we're at a time right now, it's basically you know, Crypto Wars 2.0, where these discussions are back as far as whether we should be weakening encryption, have back doors to encryption. Australia passed a law um, about half a year ago, basically weakening encryption. And so when we have aspects of the tech community coming out <laughs> and basically saying that uh, internet encryption is useless, that then can be used for fodder for those regimes that are using it to weaken encryption at the policy level. And so that's what really, really made me frustrated. Um, and just, you know, even on top of that, uh, basically the, the focus on it being you know, either you're 100% secure or not secure at all, and looking at it more in a binary way just seemed like such a, like, it lacks so many nuances to what is important for security. And so it's just such bad recommendations for a public who basically still is really, really confused about how to secure their own data. And they're increasingly interested in it as well. And so just the timing of it to me was just so frustrating because the population is more interested in, in how to secure their data. They're getting this you know, conflicting information on how to secure their data. And then policymakers are looking at it as well. So to me, it was, it was almost a double wham. You're hitting policymakers in our population with what I think is really ill-advised uh, recommendations. So you mentioned um, Australia, we can yeah. encryption in, in Russia and Iran are both you know, trying to ban Telegram. How are we going to end this trend of <laughs> trying to ban encryption on the government level? Right, well, and that's where I really uh, would like to see some global leadership on this scale. Uh, you know, currently, it's not a big debate at, within U.S. policy circles, and so I would love for the U.S. to take a leadership stance, especially as we move along over the next few years, where I see us implementing some sort of federal privacy law and taking some stance on encryption that way, because if we don't have more of a global leader and global leadership in this area, the, lead, the vacuum gets filled as far as you know, what other countries are going to do, and they're going to be copycatting more and more so the Chinese, the Russian, uh, even the Australian model, justifying what other countries are doing. And it almost always is in the name of national security and having access to information, which then for many of these countries actually also conflicts with their own privacy laws as well. And so there's an interesting conflict going on domestically and internationally, but I'd really love to see U.S. leadership on this. And the, U the EU currently is, is taking the strongest stance uh, mm -hmm. in that area with the GDPR as far as privacy. Um, and within that, they have an area as far as requiring appropriate security measures to be taken for the comp to protect data. Uh, they do lay out encryption as one of them. And so that's uh, so far in several cases has been used to, to then inform the fines that are given to companies once they have a breach, if they, if they have failed to encrypt the data. So that, that's, to me, the most visible uh, policy that we're seeing globally, but we really need a, a major country like the U.S. 
taking some leadership in this area. So what do you think the U.S. policy should be on privacy and then, and then encryption? Yeah, uh, well, I would love for, you know, and then encryption be part of the policy as a, as a requirement to help protect data. Um, and again, I'm not naive to the debates that are going on in the U.S. as well. I'm sure there'll be another Apple versus FBI sometime in the near future when it seems to be politically uh, pertinent. Um, but I would love to see end to end as part of a core component of a privacy policy. Uh, and it's got to be obviously much broader than that. Um, you know, part of a federal privacy policy will be how to secure the data, and that's where you can get into some of the aspects of end to end encryption and some of the basic hygiene factors. But then there'll be other aspects of it as far as um, who companies can sell and share data with. Uh, Maine actually just has a law going through as far as uh, prohibiting ISPs from uh, selling data. And so they're taking one of the stronger stances in that. Vermont has a law on uh, not allowing data brokers to, to, to share the data. Then obviously California's law comes into effect in 2020. So the states are starting to move forward with a lot of different areas that should help inform what our federal you know, policy will be. Going back to the WhatsApp, hack, I, I guess if you could even call it a hack, I don't even know if I would even <laughs> call it that because it's it was such a targeted thing, like exploits Absolutely. are out there and I don't think that's ever going to go away. Why is it, do you think that something that, what happened with WhatsApp tends to gravitate more to the crypto war argument? Because to me, the, the two issues at hand are totally separate. Uh, yeah. WhatsApp being encrypted has nothing to do whether NSO group or any of the other exploit makers are going to target people. So I, I just, I, I'm wondering if you have any insights or any thoughts as to why this has popped up now. It just seems so odd yeah. to me. No, I mean, I agree. And that's why, to me, it, it, on the one hand, it seemed to have come out of nowhere, just it, taking something that isn't relevant and then making a, a wrong conclusion based on it, um, which does get away from the, the, the bigger issue of you know, groups like NSO Group who are now commercializing exploits, right? So it's not just the governments with these different companies whether or not they're government or government-affiliated or completely uh, on their own, um, you're dealing with these exploits. And basically, the, the proliferation of those kind of exploits, I think, could have been the better story to tell in this area, and a much more relevant one and much more appropriate one, um, and a very important topic that I think still also isn't discussed very much. And we still see you know, this discussion going on about Eternal Blue and shadow brokers going on. Um, that similar, similar level of uh, emphasis should have been on for WhatsApp uh, when that happened but it, it just kind of didn't reach that level. And instead, because there's this article on encryption that really, I feel like, dominated the, the at least the cybersecurity news cycle for, for the week. Um, there's plenty of discuss, discussion going on, but I, I really, you know, I don't know what the timing would have been. And, and on the one hand, you know, I, I understand the argument that, you know, and encryption doesn't stop everything. And that's true, it does not stop every vector of attack, but nothing does. Right. <laughs> and so, and so that, that's why you need to take several different approaches to it. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm not really sure about the timing. I, I, I was surprised by that as well. So we talked about it briefly with uh, Iran, Russia, uh, Australia. I think Germany this week has come out and said they want, the government wants their own back doors. Uh, and tech giants turned around and wrote a letter to GCHQ and said, no, this isn't going to happen. I feel like, you know, you said Crypto Wars 2.0, but I feel like we're in, like it's a, a replaying loop. Like we're, we're in version like 60 <laughs> or 61, where it, it's the same argument over and over again. Do you think that we're just going to be stuck in this loop forever? Or is there ever going to be a point where it gets to governments just saying, uh, we've lost this battle? Because I feel like the U.S., 
is particularly law enforcement has kind of let this out to the wayside and said, well, we're not going to win this argument. Right. Yet these other governments seem to be following the same code. So I don't see how it's not going to end up on the same way for them and they're going to end up losing overall. Yeah, no, and, and I don't know. And that's why I think we really are at an inflection point in so many different areas right now when it comes to privacy and security. And so that, that again, is why I worry why these kind of articles are going to help you know, just fuel the fire for anti-encryption kind of discussions at a time when we really need to be promoting encryption as a, as a you know, solid way to help protect data for most people. Um, you know, again, that's where I think if U.S. leadership, if we, if we can move forward at the next few years, and again, I completely understand that's a huge if, uh, I think our own leadership could go a long way, and then especially as we start implementing it uh, in various forms of, um, you know, either trade agreements um, in the financial system, and when it starts to permeate in different areas. And that's where we're starting to see, while we have the law enforcement in some of these countries pushing back on it, you have other really powerful industries like finance that are more and more adopting and then encryption and other security measures. And so, you know, I think it will be a matter of um, interest groups that are going to start driving it as well and, and the impact that it may have on the economy. And so, while national security concerns dominate a lot, so do economic. And economic concerns, depending um, on the shape of the economy and what's going on at the time, you know, could become more powerful. And then there are obviously, there also is, you know, especially in the U.S., you know, DOD has come out in favor of encryption. And so even within the national security apparatus, we've got a split between the broader your DOD versus more homeland security. And so that's what, and, that, and I think that's why we just see a little bit more of a stalemate in the U.S. are kind of just kind of brushing aside of the discussion. Uh, Europe does seem to have more of the pressure, domestic pressure, to be tracking down various kinds of groups. And I think that's, I think, I think it links back to some of the instability that's going on in a lot of these countries right now. You've also spent some time writing about big tech giants and their shift towards privacy. We had ID expert CEO Tom Kelly on, and he didn't really buy that Facebook was, was really going to self-regulate and that Congress should step in. Do you feel the same way? Uh, I, I don't think self-regulation has proven to work very well. And, actually, and what's interesting, uh, for a variety of levels, what we've seen over the last year, so even if you looked at like early you know, 2018, the comments coming out by so many different tech leaders it was basically, you know, we, we've got this. We, we can self-regulate. We're, we're good. And it was asked from everything from social media companies to IBM, basically making those kind of statements. And by the end of 2018, it was shifting significantly in the realm of, okay, we need a little bit of self-regulation now. Not a sledgehammer, but we want, we want we need something that will that'll come in. And so there is sort of the, the very, um, the acquiescence <laughs> that, that something needs to be done. Uh, it took a lot of pushing. It was external pressure. And I think a lot of it came from both public opinion shifting dramatically within the United States as far as wanting some sort of regulation. And so they kind of saw that the writing's on the wall. Um, I think the California bill was a big influence on that as well because so many other, other states have started copycatting aspects of it. And so I think the companies have started to realize that either they can get in now and help shape what that federal law will be. And you know, the, the pessimists will say, you know, will say, well, that's because you know, they want to lower, they want to make it as low as possible and make it lower than the California bill. Um, the idealists will say, well, look, they're coming on board and they're, and they're, they're going to help be more in favor of it. So, you know, it's going to be, you know, depending on the company, there's some happy medium between there. Um, but there is, you know, there is that stronger push for it. And especially when you think about something like data breach notifications, which are part of it, and that we have over 50 in the United States different data breach notification laws. And for the, for the companies, there are definitely ways to streamline it so it actually becomes much, also, that privacy becomes, a federal privacy law becomes in their own economic interest as well. 
and that doesn't have to squash innovation and that actually could help promote innovation. And I think, and that's the argument that we've heard so, so much is that you know, privacy is an innovation killer and that, uh, that drives me nuts. I think that's a lack of creativity um, and it also ignores the fact of how much IP and PII has been stolen <laughs> over the last few decades. We're, we're already having a lot of our innovation go out the door and so we need to protect it. Right, so you talked about the California law, the Maine, Vermont, and New York this week. I know the legislature has been talking about a more stringent data breach notification, data privacy law. Uh, do you think that these states are starting to tighten up their laws and that that's a good thing with comparison to the, the hodgepodge data breach notification laws that are out there right now? Or do you think that something that is on more of a national, federal level could be better for the entire community as just, just to set, you know, one law of the yeah. land. Yeah, so I, th I think more of a comprehensive law is the way to go, both because it makes business easier to, to work, and it does, it would ideally help integrate all these various facets of it, because a lot of the, what the states are doing, which I think is great, and I want to, them to continue doing it, because I, th I think that puts the pressure on Congress to do something. Um, so I'm happy to see um, the growing pressure at the state capitals, and actually there was a hearing probably about a month ago that said there were over 90 privacy bills across the various state capitals right now. Wow. So it's, um, it's rising in prominence, and I think I like that that's gonna be pushing it, but I don't think the patchwork w is the way to go. Uh, it's not great for cross-border flows, it's not great for you know, how to do business in different states, um, but I do worry that it will lower the bar, and it'll take sort of the lowest uh, requirements from across all the different state ones, and so ideally, there's some federal law that's comprehensive with states having the ability to then augment it if, if they need to or want to. So you're the chief social scientist at Virtue. We'd love to hear more about social science factors into, or how it factors into what you do at Virtue and then cybersecurity overall. Yeah, no, thanks. And that, it's fine. When I first started getting into cybersecurity a while ago, that was a question I always got. And what's, what's interesting now is I don't get it quite as much, which I think people are starting to acknowledge sort of that cybersecurity has a human element and a tech element, mm -hmm. not just a tech element. And so where I do a lot of my work is, is bridging that gap and could be anything from looking at human-computer interaction, and that's more of the user interface and those kind of com uh, components, which especially in security where so many of the security tools are so non-user friendly. I think the whole you know, usability revolution that's gone off in tech has not quite made its way in the security industry, but it's starting to change. And so hopefully help push that forward. Um, and then I do an awful lot with you know, looking at the, the broader geopolitics of what's going on in security and privacy. And that's everything from these privacy laws that are going on to looking at uh, offensive cyber weapons and the, and the impact on you know, instability and so forth, the commercialization, commercialization of some of those tools, um, the rise and fall of global cyber norms, those kind of things. And then again, where the tech companies are coming in and shaping the norms because there's, the UN has not been able to push through some. And so really looking at the broad way that uh, at, the, at, inter at the intersection of cybersecurity, technology, and society is, is where I like to focus. And, uh, as a company where we're very much, you know, we, we focus on trying to make encryption more accessible and usable um, across the board for broader uh, demographics. And so um, I feel very strongly, obviously, but, you know, about the privacy aspect of it. I want to make it usable for everyone uh, and enable the users to have much more control of their data. And so that's, that's kind of how it's a nice fit from, you know, background in academia and Department of Defense to now t translating it into the tech communities and startups where a lot of those kind of discussions don't actually happen as much as they, I think they should, which is what's also drawn me into the, the cybersecurity and tech community is to try and provide some of the, some of the perspectives that are um, looking at the implications of the technology. So you talked about it a little bit there, 
but I would love to hear your opinion on what n more needs to be done to make security more usable and more uh, human-friendly. Like, What are you seeing that's changing that is helping security be more usable to the general public? Yeah, I know, that, and that's um, and it's slowly changing. Um, you know, some of it, you know, some of it's going to be really hard. It's something you look at, like endpoint security, where it's happening behind the scenes, it's going to be harder for uh, people to understand. But even like just awareness of phishing, uh, which you know, is one of the major modes of entry, there's much greater awareness of that. So I think the usability is, is in conjunction with greater awareness, and I think that, that 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 is rising. We still have a long way to go, but. Everything from you know your emails now popping up a banner saying this may not be you know, something for you to click on. Please explore. Like th those visual cues are really really important. Um, being able to toggle on and off whether you're you know, encrypting your data or not is you know, those kind of aspects are really important. So I think getting into more of the visual cues and not requiring you know learning some proprietary scripting language to ensure that your your that your data is protected or having to go out across a community and make sure all the keys are in the right spot and the, taking away some of the responsibility from the user. Um, and putting it more on the technology, making the technology usable for the users. Because I've heard, and again, the, the sort of my least favorite saying in, in, in our industry is, you know, that the humans are the biggest vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's not helpful, right? right. We, we know human b behavior is very, very hard to change. And so why don't we make the technology work better for the humans? The humans are always going to put, try to find some way to make, to work their way around if it gets in the way of their workflow, right? When we, we've seen that so many different times that you know, if you get blocked doing one thing, you may try and go another way it's, if, you, if you need to to get your business done. And so ensuring that the technology and the security actually works within that workflow, um, I think is a really good process. And, we're, and, that, and that's what we're starting to see. That, and, that, and then in turn, you know, provides, provides a visual cue for the users so they see they're protecting their data, um, which does make them feel better about that but also makes it so they don't have to do workarounds because it's just part of their natural process. And so the more we can make it more of a natural process and not a hindrance, I think the better off we are. So we like to end um, these podcasts on a random question. And um, yours isn't hard this time. Oh, it's what's the best vacation <laughs> you've ever had? Oh, that's a good question. Um, two years ago, I took my family to uh, Machu Picchu. And oh, wow. so okay. um, we went hiking. Uh, and so I, my kids were, I think... 10, 12 at the time, and we went with um, extended family as well and some other friends for my brother-in-law's 50th birthday. So it was nice. a big group. Um, I didn't have to organize anything, and so that was perfect. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just, yeah, so that alone was, you know, like, I think that probably makes it win for that alone. Um, but it was just amazing, the hiking. I, I, you know, I went to grad school in Colorado, grew up in Maine, so I loved the outdoors, and so that was just phenomenal. Despite the fact that you know, I think almost all of us at one point I got some form of sickness, but um, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. but it was still phenomenal. Like despite that, uh, it was just it was phenomenal. It was so beautiful, Even, like that. And I, the hiking alone was I think almost more of a highlight for me than versus seeing Machu Picchu, which has become really quite overpopulated. And they're starting to limit the people there, which I think they need to do. But the mountains were no, amazing. That seems to be the trend this week between Machu Picchu <laughs> and the pictures that we've seen at Everest. It's right all, all these all these high peaks have all these people on it. I really can't support that. Yeah, so, that's exactly but, right. Um, no, that's that's. Uh, I've heard great great things about Machu Picchu. So that's really really interesting to hear about. Yep, highly recommend it. Great, Andrew. Thank you very very much thank for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. It's fun. Okay, thanks again to Andrea for joining us and Jen. Okay, we've been teasing this for months now. Right, yeah. You and I finally spent some time to watch this crypto movie this week. And 
Let me pull up my notes here because I took notes you during took the notes. movie. Well, oh, I took man. notes because the movie was so bad that I was going to erase it from my memory if I didn't take notes on it. But uh, I'll, you can lead off. I'll, you so know, I'll it was actually um, it was actually so bad that I'm I was sitting in an airport in Canada waiting to to fly home, and I watched the first half half of the movie. And thought to myself, I have no idea what happened. And I actually started from the beginning. It was sort of that bad. Um, but I will say the, the most redeeming factor of, of the movie um, was something you had pointed out in the beginning um, when we were sort of talking about it last time we talked about it. It was that um, in the movie, the one of the characters opened up a file and it said, bad files here and, and whatever. Right. And that turned out that it wasn't how it was stored, it was somebody made the file for them. So right. I felt a little bit better about the movie at right. that point. But yeah, so from the technical perspective, and that's the thing, I'm not saying it's bad from a technical perspective like we did before. And when it, when the trailer first dropped, everybody sort of laughed that from a technical perspective, this looked ridiculous. There, yeah. there really wasn't any technical aspect to dive in here to say they got it wrong. Like Bitcoin was just... The, the deus ex machina for the, the the plan that was carried out through the movie. Like, it was just I mean, it your run-of-the-mill, yeah. like, Russian mob crime movie that just, oh, it just happened to talk about Bitcoin as well because Russians were laundering uh, money through Bitcoin tumblers when they were, like, stealing art or something like that. I, to tell you the truth, I never really figured out what the scheme was, just that they were trying to launder money, and part of the money laundering was through Bitcoin. And, so, okay, fine, great. Yeah. That, that's that's a, that's not a, a, a hard thing to wrap people's heads around. Like, that's what partly Bitcoin is for. We've seen time and time again that money is being laundered through Bitcoin. So from what I could tell that... Basically, they were just, the, the Russian mob was just basically trying to launder money through selling artwork at some art gallery. And I'm not sure they needed to even talk about Bitcoin or right, crypto. Right, right. Okay, just so that's... It cash going through the art thing. And I really just wondered as I watched this movie was the addition of Bitcoin slash crypto just to get investors that maybe made some money off Bitcoin. Like, is that maybe how they funded their, their movie to start with? Because... Didn't need to be there at all. Yeah, it's it it's clear to me that there had to be some sort of conversation when the movie was being written or talked about from a production level where it's like, hey, this crypto stuff, it's really cool. We should put it in the movie. And, yeah. and that was that. I mean, it was really nothing more than just a device to keep the plot moving. Like, it, it really didn't even need to, need to, be, to be that way. Yeah. Um, and... and, and Nothing cemented that more to me than the fact that he went home to this rural-ass town in New York that he grew up in where it's nothing but farmland and rickety old liquor stores. And he just happens to walk into a liquor store that's owned by his friend, and there's a Bitcoin ATM. Like, okay. I don't really? think I've ever seen a Bitcoin ATM. They're around. I, I have seen them, but I think I've seen them in like Vegas. I, I've seen them in Vegas. I think they're bigger on the West Coast. There might be some around DC, but they're in like more populated areas. Like okay. I would be willing to bet that if you actually went to Elba, New York, they're, they're having problems with like it's the rural broadband. Like we're talking about a rural Western New York town. I would 
wager that their internet connections aren't necessarily um, up to date with like New York, which also has a, a place in the movie. So the, fi- the fact that this guy had a Bitcoin ATM and had a mining rig in a, a walk-in cooler in this, you know, backwoods town was just like, all right, this is Bitcoin's clearly here just to move the plot along. Like this isn't going to be anything that really gets into the technology behind it. Although I will say that I th- that I thought it was actually a positive that um, a Bitcoin mining rig was in a walk-in cooler. Like that sounds like an actual good use of space. Like that's where you would want <laughs> to stash a Bitcoin mining rig because you want to keep those computers cool. And oh, okay, that makes sense. It was just such a stretch that you would have the Russian mob in this tiny little town laundering money through an art gallery that didn't have any customers and have yeah, and that that's the, the thing too. This, this small rural town has yeah. this like upscale art gallery in it that what <laughs> why why is there an upscale art gallery yeah. in a town that had a population i think of like six thousand? which i, I, I might be overestimating i think you're overestimating but it seemed like it would be a lot more sense for that to actually just be in new york city right and, and the art dealer overall i thought the whole art angle to the plot was just ridiculous like the art the art dealer was ridiculous the, the character was ridiculous uh I, I just and I'm still not sure why she died. Like, why did all these people die? Because it didn't seem like they were really adding or taking away. And, and how his dad was involved, I just didn't really get any of that at all. Right. It, it was a, a a very poorly constructed movie from a plot perspective, and there was not a lot of technical aptitude that went into talking about Bitcoin. Like, it was just like, yeah, money, man. This is the future. Don't don't roll your eyes at it. This is where everything's going. And that was that. Like it wasn't yeah. any talk of like the history of Bitcoin, nothing. It needed to be like a documentary or anything like that. But calling a movie crypto and then seeing the the, the trailer, you would have thought there was a, a little bit more uh, of a technical perspective when it came to the plot. And it really wasn't. It was just money. <laughs> like that's all it is. It's oh, internet money. Like that might as well have been the title of the movie. It stunk. It stunk. I wonder if Jeff Bezos will give my money back for having rented that movie from Amazon. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing that also, like, the movie was so bad, but it had a really, really good cast. Kurt Russell's in this movie. A Hemsworth brother is in this movie. Um, a Gilmore girl. Yeah, uh, Roy Gilmore's in this movie. <laughs> like, how how did this movie get made? I'm, 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 that's really my, my takeaway from this movie is one, really no talk about Bitcoin Two, really don't know how this movie got made. So there, there it is. Um, if you're watching anything else out there or need some recommendations, here's a recommendation. Don't watch this movie. (laughs) And that is it for this week. We will be back next week, free of any bad movie talk, free to talk about just bad infosec problems like we normally do so take care everyone have a wonderful weekend stay curious